into our study in 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel 12 this morning. 2 Samuel 12. I want to echo Jonathan's urging for you to take part in our book study, Who is Jesus? Uh, Just three little points of encouragement. One, uh, my son and I listened to this book last year on our way to school and found it to be immensely helpful, encouraging, as we're rehearsing truths that we know but are presented in a fresh way. Uh, Secondly, in God's providence, even just last week, I was talking to a new friend and he was telling me how he came to Christ and how God used that book, the truths of God's forsaking his own son on the cross to bring him to faith in Christ. And then thirdly, another opportunity I have to talk about this book with uh, one of our church members. We were talking together, he was sharing with me his concern to share the gospel with family members, members who might not be eager to hear his personal testimony. And I thought, oh, why not ask them to read that book with you? And you can tell them, God has used this book in my heart, maybe he'll use it in yours. Would you read it? And we could talk about it. So I'd encourage you to participate in this study. I think it'll be an encouragement for us as a body. I think it would be something that will encourage us in our evangelism. That is our focus. We want to be sharing the gospel faithfully. So this is one of the ways that we will um, seek to do that. Uh, One other quick announcement. Next week we'll have one of our missionaries with us, Jim Carlton. So we're looking forward to hearing from him both as he brings God's word and shares what God is doing in his ministry. Um, The week following that, we'll do a follow-up sermon to 2 Samuel 12 by looking at Psalm 51. We'll read from 2 Samuel 12 in just a moment. I was having a conversation recently with a friend, and we were discussing the devastating public fall of a Christian leader. It even recently made a a biopic or some video or presentation of what had happened in this person's life. This friend was sharing with me just how disturbing the behavior and sin truly had been revealed to be. She said that this has become so common among Christian leaders that it didn't even register with the general public until the sordid details were revealed. And her point was, it is so common among God's people, even those that are God's leaders, who are to be shepherding God's people, to fall into sin, that it's not even surprising to the world, until they just see how gross and distorted that sin is. That's the only time it gets attention anymore. She's frustrated She's repulsed at the reputation that Christians have when situations like this arise. Sin is devastating. And yet it's also so ever-present, even among the leaders of God's people. In chapter 11, as we saw the depravity revealed in David's heart, the depths of his sin, the heinousness of his actions... The incredible harm he so casually inflicted on others. Doesn't it seem like God underreacted? And yet 2 Samuel 11 is intended to be a warning. A revelation of the nature of sin in each of our hearts. 
It's not primarily standing as a condemnation and a judgment on David, and we need to retry that issue. It's standing in judgment on us. It's revealing who we are. Certainly, it's right for us to long for God to intervene after a chapter exposing sin like that. But we should also fall on our faces before God, begging him to rescue us from ourselves. And in chapter 12, God will act. He takes center stage. Now, how do you tend to view your own sin? How much of a problem is it really? There are two opposite dangers that we can fall into. Are you deceived by it? Do you imagine it to be less dangerous less catastrophic, less disastrous in your life than God reveals it to be? Do you believe the lie of the tempter who tells you it's not all that bad? It's not that big of a deal. Nobody else knows. Nobody else is getting hurt. Do you minimize your sin? That's the first danger. Or are you one who is often too introspective and see yourself as too sinful or too weak, or too broken for God to love, for God to use in his service? Do you magnify your sin in an unbiblical way? This passage doesn't shy away from the staggering weight of our sin, but neither does it teach us that God's grace cannot overcome it, any sin. Chapters 11 and 12 can be considered as part one and part two of the turning point in David's life as the turning point in this book. The greatest man perhaps in the entire Old Testament has fallen in a shocking, disturbing, devastating way. But what is far more incredible, and I trust you will see this so clearly in this text, is that God's grace is even more staggering and even more shocking and even more consequential. Sin and its final consequences will not have the final word in David's life or in ours if we turn to God. Our text urges us to receive God's grace both in confrontation and restoration. This morning we'll consider his grace in this passage first as God confronts David and then as he restores him. Let's look at chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through the first part of verse 7. And this is God's word to us, his people. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. 
And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Let's ask for his help as we consider this text together. Father, we come before you humbly, acknowledging that again, we need your grace. We need you to show your kindness to us. In our sinfulness and in our rebellion and the blinding nature of our pride, we turn away from you over and over again. We think we know best. So God, we need your word. Spirit, open our eyes to see and to hear the marvelous truths of a God who pursues us in grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. First point we'll see is that we are to welcome God's confronting grace. We see a change in our story right away here in verse 1. God becomes the primary actor in that very first phrase. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Here comes a prophet who will speak God's words into this situation. God is getting involved. Now, this becomes even more pronounced and more significant and more exciting when you consider how often the verb sent was used in chapter 11. That verb is driving all of the action, all of the conspiring, all of the scheming of David. He sends a man here and he sends a man there. He sends a message for the death of Uriah. It's used 11 times in chapter 11 and David is at work there. But now... But now, God is at work. He sends his prophet with his own word to confront David who is still blinded in his sin. God's intervention here is the first marvelous act of his grace in this text. We cannot rush past this. Just consider for a moment, what if God allowed me to succeed in my sin? Imagine that. What if God allowed me to get away with my sin? What if he did not pursue me and confront me when I sin? Remember how he finally allowed Saul in his final judgment, in his greatest judgment on Saul, allowed him to have his own way. God goes silent. And how quickly Saul falls into greater and greater spiritual madness and desperation. Finally pursuing a word from a witch. God's confronting grace is a blessing. And we should cry out for it. God, don't let me get away. Don't stop coming after me. God pursues David here. He pursues us with the conviction of the Spirit even before we seek him. That's the beauty of his confronting grace. If he does not pursue us, we would certainly stray from him. He must hold us fast. John Calvin comments, there is nothing better than when God sends us messengers of his wrath 
For then he can make us feel his mercy and cease to enjoy our sins. He wakes us up. These first six words of chapter 12 are an incredible comfort to every believer. Do you see them that way? As we look at verses 1 through 12, we see that God confronts David with his word. In the wisdom of God, Nathan approaches his friend in a manner that begins God's work of surgery in David's life as he begins to take the scalpel toward his heart. He starts with a story that will provoke David to truly consider what it is that he has done. The story clearly demonstrates that David's sin is not just adultery. God is pointing out, David, you have abused your privileges, your responsibilities as king. You have taken from your own servants. You have fallen in love with your power. This is blinding you from being the kind of king that God intends for his people to have. This is what was different about you than Saul, than the kings of the nations who take and take and take. You're acting like a pagan. And think of just how poorly he's misrepresenting God as Israel's leader. Israel's king was to demonstrate God's rule over his people. God's glory is being torn down by God's king. In his spiritual blindness, as David hears the story, he overreacts, doesn't he? Certainly the rich man in the story is cruel. He's done wrong. But the law would require him to simply repay what he had stolen fourfold. David declares the theft worthy of death. Notice as well that David doesn't just condemn the rich man's actions, but his heart. And this is important. I think this is where the screws of God's spirit are starting to be put upon David's heart. He says, this man had no pity. How ironic David's response is. He's unwittingly condemning himself. Now, can you see the principle in this passage that God uses his word to reveal our sin? In his grace, God speaks his word into our blindness. Through this story, both David and Nathan are demonstrating our tendency to see other people's sins far better than we see our own. We're not even truly able to recognize what's happening in our hearts because our hearts are deceitful and the first person we deceive is me. David's so exercised about this scenario. He's so righteously indignant that a lamb, a precious lamb, has been stolen. Yet he doesn't see that he has stolen another man's wife and he has stolen the lives of many of the men he is sworn to protect and lead. We should also note here the blessing of a godly friend. Nathan is a courageous man to speak God's word to David. He's taking a risk. It's very possible that Nathan could hear off with his head after you tell the king you're the man. There's a risk David will respond in anger and vengeance. And yet as a faithful prophet, faithful to speak God's words. And a faithful friend, he speaks this uncomfortable truth to his king and his friend. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
And Psalm 141.5 encourages, let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness, the psalmist says. Let him rebuke me. That is oil on my head. <clears throat> it's a blessing. God intends for us to be that kind of friend to others in this church family, to those within our own families. We're to speak the truth in love, even when it's hard for the person receiving the truth to hear. We're both to speak the truth and humbly receive correction, even when we don't see it as warranted. And doesn't this make us a little bit more aware that just because I don't see it as warranted doesn't mean that it isn't? So are you willing to speak hard truths to others? Or do you close your mouth in fear? You and I are meant to serve as Nathan in other believers' lives. That's the strength of a body, of a church family. The word, God's glory, is to be first. Not my fear of what other people will think when I say something that is difficult. We're to speak with grace and wisdom. Certainly we're not slamming down on other people thinking that we're better than them. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But if we truly love and truly care as our God cares for us, we will speak. Notice well that David is acting according to the deception of his own heart until God's word enters the picture. So humble yourself before God's word every time that it is opened. This tells us how to view it. The spirit convicts us through his written word. So expect that. Anticipate it. Welcome it. Conviction is a gracious gift from God for which we're to be prepared. Let's continue our reading the second half of verse 7. Nathan continued, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. So why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now Nathan reveals God's judgment on David's sin in three waves. In verses 7 and 8, God reveals, or he rehearses rather, the incredible kindness he's shown to David. What this is doing is establishing, David, this was unnecessary. It reveals just how selfish David had been, just how greedy he had been. That's why the word taken is used over and over in chapters 11 and 12. And the picture of the rich man fits him well. God declares, I anointed, I delivered, I gave, and I would add to you even more. 
He's saying, my generosity knows no bounds towards you. And you know that, David. And yet you wanted and took more. Church family, can I ask you to consider all that God has given to you? If God were speaking to you in this way, I gave to you and gave to you and gave to you. Make a list in your mind of his kindnesses to you that you have not deserved, that you could not have earned for yourself. And yet this morning, what is your relationship with him? What has your heart told you that you must have in order to be content? What are you craving for that are beyond the bounds of what God has already graciously, generously, abundantly provided to you? In verse 9, God argues that David's sins against men are truly against him. By his adultery and murder, David had despised God's commands. He treated them as though these people didn't matter. God says that in despising God's word, he's despising God himself. God is taking this personally. He says he sees and knows. To trample on his commandments is to trample over the commander. We can't ignore Or minimize God's commands without despising him personally. Franz Joseph Hayden was world renowned. And has been called the father of the symphony. He was a cheerful man in both his disposition and his music. But that was not due to his relationship with his wife. One biographer records that Hayden's new bride had so little regard for his composing genius. That she cut up his manuscripts to use for her hair curling papers. Was she simply expressing her contempt for his music? Certainly not. Her contempt for his music was only a visible sign of her contempt for him. Our contempt and disobedience to God's word reveals a contempt, a demeaning of God himself. Finally, in verses 10 and 11, God tells David, what the consequences of his sin will be. This teaches us that sin always has a cost. It comes at a cost we don't get to set. The Lord's discipline of David will match his sins. For using Ammonite swords to kill Uriah, the Lord will send a sword to plague David's house. For stealing another man's wife in secret and trying to cover it up, God will allow another to sin against him in the same way and publicly. God's illustrating both to David and to us his warning from Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. There are no secret sins. Whether in this life or the next, our hidden sins will be exposed. God reveals here that he hates sin, even in his own people, and he will not let it go unpunished. He will show his determination to purge it from us by his just discipline. What response to these truths should this provoke in our hearts this morning? Let's continue reading and see David's response in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord or brought shame upon him among the peoples, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. First we see David responds in humble repentance. In verse 13, we again see God's grace in his life as he responds with humility, with clarity, with simplicity, with contrition. David quickly, simply, clearly, without excuse, agrees with God that he sinned against him. David's fuller confession can be seen in Psalm 51, which we'll look at in a few weeks. But he clearly understands that the one who's most offended by his sin is God himself. We see in David, though, a living illustration of Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Now, I believe it's both wise and instructive at this point to compare David's response when confronted to Saul's. Can you remember how Saul responded when Samuel comes to him and says, what, what have you done? Why did you disobey the word of the Lord? Saul shifts responsibility. He pushes back with excuses and blame. He says, it's the people who did this. They urged me to do it. I couldn't refuse them. He blames them for his disobedience. But here, in contrast, David's confession is complete. It's unqualified. It's unequivocal. He assumes full responsibility for his actions, even after God has said the punishment that he will receive. And it's severe. He doesn't argue back and say, but God, that seems too much. Do you see how astounding and unusual this kind of response is? Is this how you respond when you're confronted by a parent or a friend? We always have an excuse for our sin, don't we? It was the other person. If they wouldn't have started the argument, we wouldn't have had a problem. It's my circumstances. It's my personality. We habitually try to justify our actions by pointing out other things. But David's response reminds me of the publican in Luke 18. He prays, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. There's only one person in view. He's doing business with God alone. And here David doesn't grovel or argue or bargain with God. This is instructive for how we are to turn our hearts to him. It teaches us how to repent. You see, sometimes we think that we have to really feel it. To lean into our emotions. To suffer for some amount of time. To express how sorrow we are for God to forgive us. But we're not forgiven because of the manner of our confession or by its length or by its sincerity. We're forgiven by God's grace and mercy alone. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The depths of our self-centeredness can even make our confession about us. We feel bad instead of about the one we have truly offended. So Jerry Bridges writes, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood 
of the Lamb. The brevity and clarity of this confession points to genuine repentance. This is true repentance. And this, this is the secret. The heart of true change. Of receiving God's grace. God says over and over in his word, God resists the proud. He holds you at arm's length. But gives grace to the humble. No one can receive the help God wants to give if we continually point the finger at somebody else at our circumstances, away from ourselves. One commentator notes the words here are very few, but that is a good sign of a thoroughly broken spirit. There's no excuse. There's no hiding. There's no concealment of the sin. There's no searching for a loophole, no pretext put forward, no human weakness pleaded, but she shouldn't have been bathing outside. Nothing like that. He acknowledges his guilt openly, candidly, without any denial of the truth. So God now shows David great mercy. Both Leviticus 20 and 22 declare that David's sins are worthy of death. God's law declares David to be guilty before God. And yet Nathan's next words are, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is astounding. This is what is shocking. How can God say this to this man who's committed sin at this level? How can God put aside murder? Is he just sweeping it under the rug? Pastor and theologian Ligon Duncan asks, what is forgiveness? It's pardon in a personal setting. It's taking back into friendship those who went against you and hurt you and put themselves in the wrong with you. And though David had sinned, and notice that David knows his sin is not only against Bathsheba, it's not only against Uriah, it's not only against all Israel, it's against God. God takes David back anyway. It's the most surprising thing in the world, but it's not done because David deserves it. It's not done because David hasn't done something really serious. It's not even done because David repents. It's ultimately done because Jesus has died. God could say forgiven because of David's greater son to come. We can count on that same forgiveness because the forgiveness of God is not based on your deserving it. It's not based on my repenting hard enough, saying the right things in just the right way with the right emotion. It's based on the atoning death of Jesus Christ. So God forgives us not because of us, but because of his son. And that's why Jesus' forgiveness is forever. It's not based on our ability to behave. God desires He conspires. He longs for opportunities to demonstrate incredible, astounding, staggering mercy and forgiveness like this. To love sinners in moments this desperate so that he can reveal his nature, our need of him, and his glory. We should never, never get over God's ability and willingness to forgive us of our sins. The gospel tells us what it cost him to do so. 
The gospel reveals in that cost just how horrible and devastating our sin truly is. The cross tells you your sin is eternally significant. Don't minimize it. And yet the gospel says God has forgiven all our sin. Notice in this passage, God isn't waiting for David to change. God doesn't wait to say forgiven for David to live this out well for a few months. He says forgiven. He's more ready to forgive you of any sin, even adultery, even murder, than we are to ask him for forgiveness. There's even more mercy in him than there is sin in us. Who is like our God? So God's grace should lead you to him, to repentance. He's far better than anything sin may hold out to you. This leads us then to our second point. Welcome God's restoring grace. Let's continue reading now in the second half of verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground but he would not nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him, and said a message by Nathan the prophet, So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now these verses don't at first exactly strike us as restoration, do they? We see the death of this baby and we may be tempted to question God's ways. But I want you to consider over all of this, God is not doing something to David. He's doing something for David. God isn't coming after David with a sword to smite him, to take his vengeance out on him. If that was the case, he would just take his life. But God with a scalpel is seeking to remove the cancer of sin in his life. 
Hosea 6.1 tells us, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Proverbs 3.12 teaches us, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. So how should we understand the death of this child? There's lots going on here, and I'm not sure I can answer this completely sufficiently in this amount of time. But I know at least it's teaching us this. It's teaching us that God forgives the guilt of our sin, but he still inflicts its consequences. One commentator notes, he cleanses sin's defilement, but may continue its discipline. Forgiveness does not remove the consequences. God's forgiveness here is both marvelous and costly. The child will die. And in some sense, it's as if this child dies in David's place. It's as if the child is David's substitute. Now, we don't want to necessarily read New Testament theology directly into this text, but doesn't this remind us, doesn't this point forward toward David's future son who will become our substitute? An innocent one who dies for our sin. Before we accuse God of injustice, of unrighteousness, know that a greater innocent one suffered and died for you. Throughout our Bibles, forgiveness is both free but costly. In verses 15 through 25, David receives God's judgment with humble faith. David's actions are confusing to his servants. He pours his heart out to God. He begs him to spare the child's life. Yet he is ultimately surrendered to God's will. We see this clearly by his response. Once a child has died, this seems strange. David's eyes, though, are fixed on God, not on what he wants in the circumstances. Doesn't this show a marvelously humble response, a man who's leaning into the character of God? Look back at verse 22 and notice his reasoning. He says, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? David's saying, knowing the character of God, he may act in mercy. He may relent from the punishment that he's decreed. Perhaps David, even knowing the Old Testament, knowing the story of Abraham and Isaac, that's what he might have in mind. God had required Isaac. It seems in that case that God is doing radical surgery in Abraham's life. Will Abraham cling to God's gift of a son, the promise of an heir, or will he love God above all else? In that case, God provided a sacrifice at the last moment in his mercy. And David knows God can do this if he desires. One writer helpfully summarizes, extraordinary prayer and fasting are not a tool to get whatever we want from God. They are a demonstration of radical submission and surrender to God's power and will. So again, this is no act of divine vengeance. It's surgery. God wants to cut out David's lust for the selfish use of power from his heart. He's seeking to heal him. 
He's seeking to heal Israel. He's seeking to reveal his nature. Though God takes this child, David doesn't run from God. He runs toward him. He leans further into what he knows to be true of God's character. Even while under God's discipline, David throws himself onto the heart of God for mercy. The ability to worship and honor God in a time of trial or crisis is a wonderful demonstration of spiritual confidence. And for David, it's a clear indication of God restoring David to fellowship with him. In these verses, David demonstrates he knows and is depending on the character of God. And God delights, he delights to show sinners undeserving mercy. Who can imagine how gracious the God of all grace wants to be to us today in our sin, in the messes that we make? There is hope in a God like this. Dale Ralph Davis concludes, for David, grace is not merely some doctrinal concept, but the peculiar bent of God's nature toward him. God will give David and Bathsheba a son, And David names him Solomon. Do you know what it means? Solomon means peace. In spite of David's sin, he has peace with God because of God's forgiveness. But God speaks even more into the birth of this son. He goes even farther and names David's son Jedidiah, which means loved of God. God's not done with David because he's a sinner. He doesn't cast him out or away. Do you see what God can bring out of the worst of our sins? Do you see how much he loves and wants to bless us? Do you see how full of grace and kindness and restoration he is without ever saying our sins are okay? Think of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. This is the permanent record that's displayed to all people as to who Jesus is. And Jesus is from the line of Solomon and it's recorded by the wife of Uriah, not David. God delights to use broken, sinful people who humbly turn to him like a firework display. This shows forth that God is gracious. He's to be greatly praised. He's able to heal and restore any sin, no matter how great no matter how devastating this sin might be. Let his goodness lead you to repentance and worship this morning. Very briefly, we'll look at the very end of the chapter. Look at verse 26. Now God fought against Reba of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Reba. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Reba and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold. And in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And he brought, it, he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at it in the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites 
Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So what we see very quickly is David receives God's victory as restoring grace. This final victory over the Ammonite stronghold signals that David's repentance was genuine and accepted by the Lord. This whole account has been bookended by this Ammonite war. God is still fighting for Israel and delivering victories to his king. He's not holding a grudge. He could have used the Ammonites to discipline David, yet he gives him success instead. Now this passage confronts our view of ourselves firstly, and it elevates our view of God, doesn't it? It provides a potent reminder of the sinfulness of our hearts. It provides one of Scripture's most vivid reminders that all human beings, no matter who they are, what they have accomplished, how seemingly godly they might be, are still but sinful men, capable of the most heinous of sins. So it tells us to put our trust in God, not men. In God and his provision for our sins. Augustine concluded of this passage, David's fall should put those who have not fallen on their guard and save from despair those who have. Our text urges us to welcome both God's comforting or confronting and restoring grace. The passage shows us the nature of our God who in his kindness pursues David to confront him and then to restore him to fellowship. In his mercy, he spares David's life. He forgives him of all of these sins because one day the greater son of David will serve as the final substitute to truly pay for that sin. And God goes even further and provides David another son who's directly in the line of the Messiah. His promises will not end because of David's sin. Do you see how the passage reveals to us both our need and God's provision through Jesus Christ? David's greater son is not only a righteous king who never gives in to the tempter's lies. He's also David's son who gives up his life as our substitute. He saves his people from their sin. He never selfishly takes from his people and abuses his power and authority over them. He gives himself to them again and again in overwhelming, staggering grace. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we marvel at your grace. We are stunned by its magnitude. We are in awe that you are not put off by our sin. You are not deterred from pursuing us because we have rebelled against you. Like foolish sheep always wandering off into danger, you continue to pursue us and call us to yourself. May we turn our eyes to Jesus this morning. 
the God who forgives all of our sin, who even takes it upon himself as the innocent substitute. Certainly you didn't deserve that. And yet your forgiveness is both free and costly. May the cost of your sacrifice for our forgiveness humble us. Our sin is much worse, prevalent, and dangerous than we want to look at and see. And yet, your love is greater and more affirming and wonderful and revealing of your nature than we can even begin to comprehend. Father, thank you for showing us Christ as we asked you to do at the beginning of this sermon. Help us to respond to him in humility, in submission, in greater dependence. In his name we pray, amen.